When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Back with Peter Canterbury to discuss the Sundance Resources air crash crisis. To recap, an international search and rescue operation spanning three countries with support from seven different nations was underway in Cameroon. Uh, all efforts over the first 60 hours had not found the missing plane. How were the families coping at that stage? We're in day two of the um, of the overall response, Peter. How were the families coping at that stage? At that point, they were just uh, being kept up to date on a regular basis um, through our counselling uh, staff um, obviously very anxious about getting getting news. Uh, we tried to update them on a regular basis, but it was more about having to understand what happened during during the day, hmm. um, and then which is the Cameroon day rather than the time zone doesn't doesn't really allow it to be very early to um, give them any updates. So they were understandably very you know anxious uh, during that time, and it was continual having using the counselling services and the psychologists that we had uh, mm. to make sure that we were communicating with them on a regular basis. Uh, as we said, it was about 60 hours into the search and uh, the search hadn't found the missing plane by that stage. What was starting to go through your own mind at that point in time? Oh, look, it was obviously uh, became, you know, of a concern to us that if we hadn't heard them with them in, in 60 hours, that was... Um, uh, it was likely more and more likely that it was uh, not going to be a um, uh, a rescue um, uh, process, uh, but we remain until we got any positive, you know, positive news that we would remain hopeful. Mm. Uh, but the longer the time, the remoteness of, lo of location would made it as, as very much a more difficult scenario to to manage. Look, the issues around there is that you know by that time we'd been able to ring around to various airfields that hadn't been landed there. Mm. Um, and, and so there was a lot of a lot of interest in it. So there were people bringing us up, and you know a lot of them wasn't positive. Uh, but uh, it really reinforced that this was not, you know, looking as though this would be a, a very positive outcome. So, so, with that in mind, what was the effect on the the team? Did it uh, did it change the objective that you had set with them at the start around finding them alive, or did it change at any point in time? I don't think that changed a lot. I mean, obviously, the in, people's internal concerns were that we're, you know, this this was not looking very good from a people perspective. Mm. What they were, people um, were much more focused that you know we had to do the best thing for these families and try and find the plane. And mm. So it was really a focus, more way that we needed to find the plane. We needed yep. to get an answer, and and it was more. It wasn't about you know what was going to be the result of that. It was really we need to find the plane first. 
Having said all that, there was still required to be a number of contingencies in place in case they were found alive. So what sort of contingencies were put into play in case that did occur and what sort of resources were brought to bear, can you recall? So we had helicopter assets that were able to do any extraction, um, should we find, but they were also utilised in the search. So we knew that we had capability from from an asset perspective. We were dealing with DFAT in terms of any support we needed from a consular perspective hmm. uh, and and any uh, assistance in uh, both from a medical um, extraction and, and any um, uh, a, a consular uh, connections but with the uh, various countries that we're operating so you know it was it, our search area covered both Cameroon and, and Congo we were dealing with Gabon because of the uh, French military were coming from uh, from their base in Gabon uh, but it was then having a look at what's the capability for any um, uh, any medical assistance and and you know it was likely that, that was going to come from South Africa and, and so those those considerations um, but it was, you know, at that point in time, once we got to that 60-hour point in time, hmm. there was other things that we still had a company that um, that was needed to be put into a trading hold and suspension. Uh, we needed to talk to, you know, major shareholders um, and and we also, and, and the regulators about what, what, what was happening. Hmm. Um, so that, that started to, you know, have a little bit more momentum that we needed to address. Uh, and the media frenzy by the time we got to that, you know, Monday morning was was a pretty, um, or Monday afternoon, that was a very, you know, we'd done the initial um, uh, press conference, uh, but that only really fed, uh, fed the um, media uh, at that point in time. That, uh, that media interest certainly went up another notch. What was happening in country for your teams over there as well? So they were obviously coordinating a lot of the efforts on the ground over there. How was this starting to affect them on the ground? Yeah, so there was, um, yeah, so it, our structure in, in Cameroon and in, in Yonde was we had a office there which had uh, probably uh, 20 people in it. They were uh, predominantly uh, uh, nationals. Um, uh, we had a local CEO who was there. They were not experienced in mining or um, matters of, you know, emergency and risk management. Uh, weren't coping very well and they were also getting people coming to their gates wanting to know what was happening, uh, including uh, media outlets, uh, not just from in Cameroon, but uh, international media outlets uh, that uh, came to there. So they were starting to get uh, uh, stressed and culturally they don't deal with um, uh, a tragedy as um, as robustly as other places. It's much more cultural that you actually go into mourning straight away and, and just disappear, mm. where, which is the last thing that we needed. We, what we needed is people there to support the efforts that were going on at, at site. So it became tensions at site because they still needed fuel there to actually, you know, we need to get helicopter fuel to be able to refuel helicopters down there. We needed uh, fuel for there. They were trying to actually... Uh, Look on the ground uh, and go go on the ground to actually uh, to to uh, look for the uh, plane. So so there was a lot of activity and 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 at that point in time when they were getting answers out of the um, office in Yonday, it became stressful for people on the on the site. So it it, it raised some issues uh, which we had to deal with and uh, and then deal with the likes of Total, which have supplied both our supplied both the diesel uh, fuel for the uh, camp, but also the um, 
um, aviation fuel that was needed to uh, to refuel helicopters. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty intense situation. And, and noting by this stage that it had been a continuous twenty four hour operation from really the Saturday night through till till Monday. We roll forward to the to the end of Monday afternoon. All the preparations had been conducted for the for the following day's search in country during daylight hours in in Cameroon and Congo. Uh, two helicopter assets had been seconded to to perform a search over the Avima Ridgeline, which from a terrain analysis from from Rob, Rob Longley and the team. Uh, indicated it was probably going to be the most likely position for any type of incident. Uh, what was the what was the sort of plan that sort of led to the subsequent finding of of the uh, of the plane crash site there, Peter? It's um, so over the time, some of those details are you know less less clear, but uh, it was you know the driving of the direction that um, uh, and uh, from where you know the knowledge that they clamoured uh, from from various sources, it would appear as though it was likely that it was in, in that region. Um, uh, it was a very difficult terrain. Um, and, you know, looking back at even, you know, uh, there was evidence that they'd actually flown it over a couple of times and hadn't seen anything. But um, uh, so these the, the advantage of a helicopter is that they're one, they're slower speed, two, they can go at a, a lower, lower height, so I've got more chance. Uh, to actually uh, see what was happening, um, and you know, eventually they were the assets that actually found the um, the, the uh, evidence of, and I think it's more an evidence that there there was some um, had been some crash there. Uh, that crash scene was located, and and a message came through. What was the feeling or the emotion in the in the crisis control center, or the crisis management uh, at that point in time? Yeah, I, I think um, there was. One is that we didn't know. Um, it was it was relief that they we actually were, were found needle in the haystack type by locating it, and and I think it was very hard for any initial view that to see if there was what what was the scenario. So whilst it was a relief there, I think there's probably a realization at that point that you know if it had crashed in that area, it was pretty not likely that there would be a good uh, outcome from a from a people's perspective, but optimism remain because we'd actually found it and we could actually then tell families that we found it we didn't know um, and we would try and get someone onto the ground uh, as possible to um, to assess that uh, all right so we found the aircraft uh, at that stage then there was a decision taken to uh, to repel a team member down to the crash site uh, Jack Skog uh, had been trained in that and was repelled down onto the crash site he secured the site and then reported back that they're all deceased what was the what was the the again the sense of emotion within the team at that point in time? Look, I think it's a sense of despair that uh, we'd um, ultimately been unsuccessful in you know in rescuing them. But I think philosophically it was that you know at least we were able to um, uh, find um, you know the remains because that was interesting. Is one of the conversations we had was with the families was to they you know they said no matter what the outcome just please promise that you'll bring bring them back to us. Mm. And so it was, because there was a real risk in, mm. in that environment that planes can not be found. Um, and so that was, you know, a sense of relief that we had found them. That was obviously, it was, uh, was a tragedy that it was unfolding in terms of there, were, there was no, one, no survivors on the plane. Mm. Uh, but for us, it was, a, um, you know, it was really 
that's the end of one stage and and you almost go onto autopilot you need to go you know to the next so so we then went through the process of notifying the families that mm-hmm. um, they've been found and there there was no survivor and that was really then whilst they all expect i think they were all expecting that over that period of time you know it was a real reality and you know and you had cases of you know families that, uh, who'd lost husbands um, mm-hmm. fathers um and you know, partners, uh, which was a real, sh- you know, shock to the um, uh, them and having to support them, and also there was a deep sense of loss within the organisation at that point in time. That you mm. know, it was a sense that, that we failed by by not you know finding them alive, but mm. um, that you know, and there was a reaction of grief within the organisation. However, you know, it really steeled us more into to the point that we now have to do the right thing by the families and get them home. Um, as as quickly as possible, uh, and, and we knew it was a challenging uh, terrain, and would would not be easy to do. And it had been, you know, some time since the accident occurred, and which would make it more difficult. The the family notification process. Can you explain how that was uh, prepared for? Firstly, and then secondly, how that was managed and and um, yeah. performed. It was uh, similar to the initial notifications that we all went out with the coordinated approach to tell everyone at the um, same time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, and how many uh, families we, were we talking about here? So we had... So there was 11 on the plane. We didn't have any... We, we Our duty to the, um, the pilots was to... Um, uh, would deal with the... Uh, they dealt with through their... Um, the company um so there were nine individuals that were doing so we had one there was an analyst with uh, gmp which we arranged through our gmp mm-hmm. um you had then uh, jeff duff on there who was uh, through Dy- dynamic coordinating that and then natalie uh, natalie plus on i think it's natalie uh, yeah, yeah. And so um, that was coordinated through the Talbots, um, Dennis Wood and the um, Talbot group who were, she was working for and and the rest of them we dealt with directly um, and, you know, located. So Talbots were in Queensland, uh, Car Greggs were in, in Sydney and then the remainder were um, Perth-based um, personnel. So so we had to coordinate across the various locations to tell them at the same point in time. In Australia, it was accompanied by a local police. Local police, yeah. uh, Which was a requirement. Um, and we had a, a counsellor uh, there to, that would stay with the family. And then one of us, um, a representative of the company, went, went there to make the notification. So, For, for you personally, performing that notification um how did that uh how did that affect you and and certainly how did uh what was the sort of lasting memory for you of having to perform that sort of a task oh look it was um heart-wrenching um that it would it reminded me of uh you know telling someone that their husband and, and father wasn't wasn't coming home and um having uh, you know, a daughter of myself um you know you, you could just feel feel that you know, it was a huge sense of loss for them, and uh, and that you know there was nothing you were going to be able to say that would give them comfort, um, other than the request that came is please, you know, please make sure you get him back to us. Um, don't let, don't not succeed in that. And 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 it was a, you know, it was a sense of belonging and being home. You know, then bring them home um, was was a overwhelming part of that. But the grief and and really loss of, you know, immense loss that was uh, being felt by the people that, you know, they at one moment had a 
life and next to, you know, one of the central figures of their life has been taken cruelly away from them. And so, so look, it was gut-wrenching and, and, but, you know, it was driven by that's what we need to do, a sense of mm. duty and it's the right thing and we have to be respectful and, and deal with it. It doesn't mean you're, you know, you become uh, unaffected by it, mm. uh, but you, you have a higher sense of duty that makes you continue despite what your feelings are and try and be strong for them. You know, it's the moments after that when you're in a car by yourself and you, you know, and you, you're trying to put yourself into their position where you, and you're just, you know, you're just empty yeah. um, with a moment. So, so look, it's very tough, but um, that wasn't really the, you know, you know, it wasn't time to think about what I was feeling. It was time to actually just, you know, it made it more important for their reaction to get, get them home. Move, get them home and move quickly. And, and so that was the, the next um, phase that we quickly went into. You said that really steeled you and as a person and the, and the team as well from there. What was the, the objective? Did that change then overall? And you said the word respectful. What was the main objective then that you set for that team in, in order to ensure that, you know, that they did bring them home accordingly? Yeah, look, the things that came up was that one, they're in a remote location. It was going to be a difficult extraction. And we needed to make sure how we were going to then meet the requirements of uh, autopsies and, and likes within uh, the country that we're, they were found. And that was in the Republic of Congo. Uh, and then how we get it back and coordinate that all through. And so um, it, uh, it became very much a... a um, logistics organizer of how we do it uh, given this was very public in terms of uh, not just in Australia but globally there was immense interest um, we were the location would have require multiple um, transit points uh, it was some 1200 kilometers from uh, from Brazzaville where it was determined that, that where the uh, autopsies uh, would would occur and and so the range of helicopters don't work so they would have to be helicoptered from there um, and then put to a uh, changeover point to go onto a, a fixed wing plane um, and that was going to be at a you know a, a public uh, airport OESA um, airport uh, which uh, <coughs> was, yeah. uh, uh, was not a public it was not fenced or you know shaded off so it was going to be very difficult to maintain um, uh, confidentiality and, and, and respect for uh, the process. So it brought a lot of challenges, but um, it also then through our relationships um, and our advisors' relationships, the ability to bring in people to assist that and that that was utilised. And so there was a very well-defined plan, um, which we had to come up with first and then and execute, uh, which dealt with those issues um, in terms of physically doing it and, and secondly, doing the, um, uh, getting the capability of staff in, in country to be able to, to undertake autopsies mm. um, and where, you know, the DFAT um, was extremely helpful in providing some capability in, in, in that um, mm. and, and uh, not interfering with a, another government process, but uh, providing a resource to assist. Yes, that was the disaster victim identification team, which was the, yeah. the federal police led sort of contingent so the, the the key focus there became the the returning of the family members home and and doing that respectfully what were then some of the challenges or, or what were some of the other 
really touching things that you, you recall did occur at the Congolese end in particular? Yeah, there was a very much a very respectful approach by the Congolese. And, and Congo, Republic of Congo has had its challenges. It's had you know, civil wars it, uh, for a number of years. It's not overly developed and doesn't have great uh, infrastructure there. But the president um, was aware of it. Uh, he, you know, it is a tragedy in, in his country. Uh, he, uh, they wanted to have a memorial, and and so after um, all the um, uh, all the autopsies were finished, and the uh, the uh, the bodies were going to be transported to home, back to their home. Uh, they ha undertook a, a, a ceremony um, at the airport at uh, Brazzaville. Uh, each of the people were um, uh, awarded a, a medal um, by the president. Uh, it um, and it was very respectful and just ha how to say that you know this is a not just a, uh, a, a tragedy that impacted the people, but it impacted the whole you know a, a whole continent uh, as well as the rest of the world. Um, and it was a very respectful process. And I think the family's got some, you know, what's the, in a grieving process, but um, that their acknowledgement that, you know, the, this was a tragedy and, and that there was, it was being dealt with very respectfully in the country that it occurred, um, uh, gave them uh, comfort. Uh, it, uh, so, you know, we were very grateful for that. And um, it took a big effort on, on the part of the Congolese government and, and we, we were, With the repatriation now in full swing, what was the, the media coverage like back in Australia? So remembering we've gone back, we'll go back a few days here and you know, we first found them. Uh, obviously, uh, it was there was no survivors of the air crash. What was the spike in activity again that happened at that point in time from a media perspective? Oh, look, it became, you know, it, it, you know, it was found and then the questions are, is why, why did the why did the accident occur? You know, why were all the board um, on the same plane? How did it happen? Is there any, you know, reason for this, you know, right plane, etc.? And so it raised, you know, as as many, you know, you you located the plane, you're doing a repatriation process, but it didn't really stop the media speculation in terms mm -hmm. of that. It um, uh, and then it, you know, it, uh, it so it was difficult because you're trying to you know manage um people and emotions and and at that point in time in, within our organization uh, people uh were struck with grief as well and so uh, this was the the second stage of uh of grief within the um and the organization where people um uh were impacted and they couldn't work in a in a way and, and some people just needed to be you know had time to grieve and, and, mm. and so we had a wave of people which we had supported through having you know psychologists there and people to talk to but some of the people just you know finding there and having this process was was very difficult and they they needed to have some time time out and go mm. and, and that was the same in at the site we you know we stopped you know drilling at site we allowed people to come off site uh, once and once everything ever the repatriation process and then uh, allow people to have some uh, down, uh, down time and reflection time. Uh, and, and so the organisation kept moving from a 
repatriation and into the memorial stage because people mm. there were obviously funerals and memorials that would need to be uh, undertaken. We had a memorial that was in before the, the, the bodies came home um, because it was an you know a period of time before that would happen so that we could have a public um, uh, memorial that was conducted in, in in Perth at the convention centre there and uh, so that the, the grieving process from our community could could occur and then we at the same time needed to just and keep running with the repatriation and then the support for the families through their you know this uh, you know emotional time that would occur with them bringing the bodies home and also um, uh, saying farewell to to their loved ones and, and so from a process or a team process perspective did that shift uh, the crisis management center shift its operating mode after that repatriation phase and, and what did that look like and how did it change? Yeah, until until the, like it was, once we found the plane and, and done the extractions uh, to Brazzaville, it, the, it, um, the crisis centre moved from a 24-hour operations down to a daylight hour uh, operation, but it still needed support what was happening on the repatriation then working and it was really then supporting the families from a, from a and the logistics side, so we had to deal with you know Air France is the only major airline that was uh, and they all need to be transported. Mm -hmm. um, we took two of our um, well, they were at that point appointed advisors to the company, uh, Michael Blackstone and George Jones, to go over to um, to Brazzaville to accompany the the, the bodies home, mm -hmm. and uh, they undertook that process, and then. We needed to go and support the families, and you know what do they want to do, and where it needed, you know they wanted uh, arrangements going. So there was a fair bit of a you know logistics at uh, that point, and then the media side of it still kept going because it was of interest, and the questions kept kept coming. Mm. And then dealing in country, so we had then in countries about what you're going to do, mm -hmm. um, and so the grieving process of that and then, but. You had two governments where we had held assets there. You know, the cultural thing would be to disappear, and that was the message that we got. And we we didn't think it was the right time to then just go and say no, we're not going to stop. We we wanted to just make sure we dealt with the families first. Mm -hmm. But there, unfortunately, because we're a listed Australian company, we had to deal with the issues from a significant issues from a governance and corporations mm -hmm. law or uh, requirement, uh, which. Is really, you know, it's not what you want to do, um, but you have to, as a sense, and uh, you know, and that can be um, construed by the families as being that you know you are, you know, you're more worried about the company. And but unfortunately, we just didn't have any choice. It's the you know, you had a listed company that had no directors on board. Uh, we needed to take control of the company, work with the regulators, mm -hmm. and and ultimately we had to take some risks in terms of um, uh, which we're more than happy to as appointing advisors, then de facto uh, directors, and mm -hmm. making the company survive um, mm -hmm. and our, uh, allow that um, the memories of these people could be um, perpetuated through you know development of the project that which they wanted to be involved in, and so mm -hmm. uh, so. It became, you know, a different focus. So the, you know, the crisis management center was no longer a crisis management center. It yep. was a, a, a logistics and a business support process. Where so we still had the media side of things running. We had the all yep. the counselling side, which was mm. really it was important because it became much more widespread. And so mm. it was dealing with the families were our principal 
contact then we had our uh, the staff that were impacted and that the staff that were sitting in Cameroon and Congo and, and people who lived through a tragedy and firsthand and so that was it wasn't any less difficult at that point in time but it was just more of a, an organization perspective for that point. yeah switched into a different operating mode um, to, to enable those logistics and, and the welfare support um, and, and again, the other sort of stakeholder support to continue on. What was the sort of turning point from the media perspective and the media um, and the media sort of engagement or, or the frenzy, the activity that occurred at that stage? What was the turning point of the, of the media response overall? I think the turning point was when, when they, when the final, the number of the funerals or memorials that um, occurred, uh, the interest level from a intenseness a, a switch from um, from the emotive side of their interest to uh, less and, and understanding. You know, there was articles will will you know Sundance survive um, much more to a business perspective. Yep. There were still the unknowns in terms of why it occurred. Mm. Um, they looked it diminished a bit, but it still was an undertone for a while. And, and there was, you know, you've had people who have aviation experts and, and uh, people being interviewed and saying, mm. you know, that shouldn't have happened and raising issues that, to be quite honest, were not helpful and, and, and most of them were not, uh, were, were not factual in terms mm. of that. And, and, and we, out of respect for the family, didn't want to go into a, um, a process where we um, defended uh, or you know or debated this in, in public. We wanted this to be dealt with respectfully and allow the pa uh, families to grieve and mm -hmm. and start you know rebuilding their lives and to mm -hmm. the the best extent they could. The uh, the I recall probably the I think it was the twenty third of June was when uh, Julie Gillard overthrew Kevin Rudd, and leading up to that point, there was there was certainly the the heavy intensity. Sorry, the heavy, intense media scrutiny had had, uh, had been been reaching a bit of a crescendo for those different types of issues, as you're talking about. From there, we'd lined up for the weekend to 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 do more of the editorial style sort of responses. But but uh, but when the when Gillard overthrew Rudd, it uh, it certainly shifted a lot of the attention from from what we were doing and what was happening in the response to the to the change of government for the first time at that stage. Uh, did you notice a, a big difference? In the in the tempo or the intensity of media scrutiny from that that early stage, um, or did it lift up again? You know, a few weeks post, as you said, when the when the repatriation occurred and and families had had a chance to settle in more. No, look, that, you know, other items, you know, take you off the front page and to uh, less of uh, lesser scrutiny. But you know, then you go from the immediate, you know, day to day reporting, and then you go to the you know the current affair articles and yep. things like that where mm. it's taken from a you know broadsheet into a a less of a um, tabloid a tabloid type of uh, approach where they get those experts in and you know they speculate um, afterwards from broadsheet to tabloid and then you know people were being you know speculation uh, of that it did settle down mm. um, and really uh, enabled us to uh, to get along with um, there, there were practicalities. I mean, making sure that the families had um, uh, funds to, you know, operate. There was insurance that would, which was paid to the, um, the deceased families, um, and and making sure that we we dealt with that in in a respectful manner. So so there were a number of things that you know went into a mode where you know we were dealing with you know insurances and dealing with the corporate regulators, 
but had a very clear focus that we needed to make sure that the family support was there. And so, you know, using critical components was a, a key part of that. And that was where the switch occurred to, you know, how things were going, make sure that we had regular engagement with the family. Mm. Any and, and and there will be stressful points of that where things will occur and they don't really like what's happening and mm. and 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 trying to make sure that we're open to hear hear that and and, and you know, there were several points like that, um, which you don't really want to go into, but they it, it took um, you do need to be just cognizant of um, there were people that we know in who were deeply affected and we needed to make sure that we kept supporting them and didn't do actions that could um, uh, you know, be perceived by them as being something a bit different, uh, you know, not, not different, but in a different direction to what they would like us to be focusing on. And so um, there were regular conversations to make sure that we uh, did that. Um, and look, we, we we're not perfect. I'm sure there were things we did which, um, you know, uneten unintentionally impacted them and, and we would then have a discussion so we're you know we are um, sorry about that and and so you know it did put tension within uh, there but uh, we had a, a commitment to make sure that our, our 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 commitment to the families was much more you know our number one focus um, but these things we had demands on us that unfortunately we needed to deal with as well uh, a pretty obviously intense uh, major incident that had occurred leading into you know leading into the the crisis then that that, that evolved from it how did the co uh, the company ultimately respond post so um, after the immediate crisis has resolved um you, you said that you had the challenges around uh, reforming the company uh, in accordance with asic and the regulators what were some of the, the ongoing challenges then that the company faced as a result of this particular in incident yeah so look the um at, when the um, uh, they were uh, the plane was found, you know, and and we the deceased, we effectively had a company that had no directors. Mm. So I was the CFO. I didn't. Um, uh, I wasn't even the company secretary. The company secretary was John Carr Gregg, and and therefore had no other than my management, uh, um, you know, authority to do what uh, um, within my uh, delegated authority um, I didn't have any uh, any ability to you know to run the company um, and and so there were no directors so what we had to do is um, and this is where you know Michael Blackstone was a, of a immense uh, help and and um, he's you know logical and, and good um, understanding of the law and, and good relationship with the regulators to to work through a solution that it was a you know, problem because under the corporation's law, you couldn't have the company without directors. Um, we didn't have the ability to appoint directors. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to take an approach. So I got um, uh, Michael Blackstone, um, uh, George Jones, and uh, Adam Rankin Wilson, and we asked them to be um, uh, advisors, special mm -hmm. advisors to the, to the company, uh, but they didn't have any authority. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so the next step was then to uh, a point uh, and the solution that we worked through with um, ASIC uh, was the concept of de facto directors. So we uh, we then made a decision to uh, appoint de facto directors. It's not quite a concept that's you know accepted. We discussed it with um, ASIC. They said that they wouldn't oppose it, um, but it would require 
you know, there was some risk on both parties that that, that would occur. So ultimately, where we needed to do is we needed to then call a um, shareholders meeting. Mm -hmm. Problem is, you need either directors to call a shareholders meeting, or you need a party holding over five percent of the capital to call a special meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, so we then approached the um, the executives of the, the Talbot um, group, and they um, they then called on uh, called a meeting. So we where we could then appoint um, directors. So we had to call a shareholders meeting. Mm -hmm. that takes. Um, six weeks effectively um, to do that and so we needed to call that and before we could actually have people that were um, de facto directors pointed as directors of the company and then reformed we did that and um, and then we appointed them it then caused a real issue with our bank our bank had uh, said i was a signatory um, then uh, but we didn't have a second signatory to and all our, our, our mandate with the bank was that we needed two signatories they would allow a, a, another signatory, but we then had to every transaction that we undertook during that period of time then had to go to uh, get approved by shareholders. Um, at, at me. So there's some practicalities, mm. but I'd have to say, you know, despite our very difficult circumstances, you know, and the regulators who are cooperative in terms of, but you know, there was risk. So each of those um, de facto directors took a risk that if anything went wrong during that time, they were personally liable. Okay, mm. so there was an acceptance of personal liability that um, would be undertaken um, and applied to those de facto directors. So that process occurred, and we then we uh, we relisted July and okay. um, within time period, and then we reformed as a, a company. We'd have to then deal with the shareholders, so we had some large shareholders. We'd raised ninety million dollars in two thousand at the end of two thousand and nine. Uh, and started the independent uh, feasibility study. So we had quite some quite large shareholders who a number of them are UK or US based. Uh, the US doesn't understand being in trading holding suspension and okay. trying to work with about a plan of what we were going to do, what we were going to focus. And we're midway through a um, dependent feasibility study and we need to actually uh, complete that. That was due for completion by uh, December uh, 2010. Mm -hmm. uh, we ended up completing that in um, January or early February 2011. So okay. uh, we stopped a month after the plane accident. We re recommenced our, our studies phase mm -hmm. uh, and then reformed. You know, the company was effectively reformed and 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 we went back into an operational stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so it became a much more of a um, you know, an organisation that was still deeply affected by the tragedy, but had a sense of commitment to make sure we we honoured the memory of those people. So effectively, you had a, a month, month and a half of disruption, physical disruption to to your overall program of work. Did you have any sort of plans in place over that time around continuity or what would be required for commencement? Um, and subsequently, also, what were you looking at as a longer term recovery strategy post the incident and the effects of the incident? Yeah, the, the, the fortunate thing we had is that we had a, you know, the board that, uh, that was in charge of, at, that, at that point in time uh, had, there was a very much a clear strategy of where we were headed. So we were headed down to complete DFS with um, point an EPC contract and do a strategic partner process. Mm -hmm. And we were down the path of, um, of, of, of and then negotiate mining uh, conventions. So we were able through George Jones coming back on and he was the uh, original chairman that was appointed in 2016, uh, 2006. Uh, he came back on. Michael Blackiston was was the uh, 
uh, a lawyer and he was deeply involved in the convention discussions and, and ultimately himself and myself negotiated the mining convention in Cameroon and Adam Rankin-Wilson, who was really the um, person who vended in, they were able to continue the plans of the the, current, the previous board. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we put that in in terms, uh, built on that and appointed um, uh, Barry Etheridge and uh, Fiona Harris uh, to the board to bring in uh, uh, engineering capability, uh, but also a governance side of things because, you know, we, we've gone through a very tough experience in terms of... Um, uh, of what we'd gone through and we just needed to make sure we were very, we had a very strong aspect in that and Fiona brought that strong governance perspective and, and so it was important that we did that. So we were able to then, the core management team was in place, I mean, and we then, we searched for a, um, began the process to search for a new CEO. I filled in as interim CEO for six months mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when then we brought in um, a new CEO uh, starting, I think, in either late November, early December um, 2010. Uh, so by the time we got to the end of 2010, we had a pretty well uh, DFS that was quite close to being uh, done. Um, we were and had a strategy that the previous board um, had actually uh, enunciated to the market. Uh, we, we were following that and we were able to continue down that pro process. And so um we you know it's a it, one thing you need to be you know respectful of it, you know boards that have good strategies in place uh, it is very and it's where it's enunciated and then and, and the advantage of being a public company is that we had presented that to the marketplace we'd raised funds based on that and we were still on a delivery phase and there was nothing that occurred that mm -hmm. got that from that the general um, strategy in place obviously there was some um, this tragedy which uh, we we needed to recover from you know, from multiple angles but that didn't change the overall strategy of the company in fact you know what we you know was quite dis discussed quite a lot of time was mm. it emboldened us to make sure that we we did this and we didn't you know we had a very firm commitment with there is that we needed to do this and get this right because uh, those people had ultimately paid a, um, a very the ultimate price in in fulfilling this dream of um, of getting this uh, project up and running and it was important to them and, and we were duty bound to um, to see that through stepping uh, stepping forward a few years now and into into sort of present time now Peter thinking back uh, over that time post the, the the immediate crisis response and and the subsequent recovery efforts, uh, what's been the sort of challenges that the business has then faced up until now? But the, the project still sits in a in a in a form that's ready to run. The, there's um, it is it is you know a very credible world class project. But funding of remote in, you know, infrastructure projects um, of, in the order of four billion, you know, four to five billion dollars is tough. And, it's tough, and, especially uh, yeah. So, so look, you know that's where it is. But you know we. And, you know, I would have loved to, you know, spend all my time and get it up and running. But um, at some point in time, uh, I, I felt the need there was that we needed to um, change. Um, mm -hmm. I'd spent three years pretty much on a plane going around negotiating with mining conventions uh, and uh, raising funds, getting strategic partners in, in um, discussions in place. And and felt it was the time to then to spend more time with my family and mm -hmm. do something that was focused in Australia for a while. Uh, but you know, I ultimately a believer in in the project, and and 
you know, I still feel deeply committed to, you know, that what that project is and, and I'm deeply impacted by the, you know, the loss of my friends mm. and good colleagues. Uh, and it will remain with me forever day. But, you know, look, there are things that we did well. We, we had discussions with, you know, uh, one of my uh, friends is, um, works for a major. They had an accident in Africa as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the comments back from that is our response was probably better than the major response in terms mm. of that. And there were some simple reasons for that is that one, being a small company, we knew that we didn't have the resources in in house to be able to you know manage all this uh, internally. So we then you know, ultimately got experts in the field um, to do as as consultants. So mm-hmm. you know uh, like you know the dynamic relationship was um, uh, was one that uh, was a very you know was a was a great relationship in terms of we we got uh, resources what we needed. Um, but we brought in capability into our organisation to deal with this crisis. We also had a crisis management plan um, from the site. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a formal corporate crisis management plan, but this was effectively a um, was rolled out to that um, crisis management. We had a you know a takeover plan for yeah. our, the company, yeah. um, but that doesn't really that's a sort of a middle you know ground. It doesn't deal with that. So the we utilise that crisis management plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in the, uh, the advantage we had is people who were involved in the company knew that plan, knew who uh, who to contact, mm-hmm. um, and were, were able quickly able to get resources. So mm-hmm. you know we were able to through relationships get you know the. PPR to, to manage our media so dynamic to run our, our crisis center relationship with DFAT to to um, provide that assistance and you know one thing I really you know where you understood how supportive your government is at that point in time is that mm. you had um, Stephen Smith who was the foreign minister at the time um, obviously knew some of the families uh, there and Stephen Smith made the time to come into the office on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, was engaged and really made sure that we had resources there to that the Australian government would support uh, um, our uh, companies that are operating in these areas when they go through these um, issues. And, and it is a real credit to the Australian government that they they had those resources and they had that commitment. So you, you didn't have a corporate crisis management plan and you said that you then called on the right resources in this sort of circumstance. Would you advise differently to anyone else? Thinking about that, yeah. Doing differently. Yeah, look, we had a plan for a takeover. Yeah, but, um, not, not for a. Um, and essentially, uh, you, had an, you had an emergency response plan, really, for in country, didn't you? Or a crisis plan for in country? Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was led out of necessity in terms mm. of we done a risk assessment, and our biggest mm. risk assessment was, as I mentioned earlier, that, uh, about uh, road transport. We'd had yeah. one incident where we had someone we had to, had to do a medical evacuation by plane mm-hmm. out uh, to Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2008 i think it was um, yes, yeah, uh, right. and and so we we knew that there was some you know the, the right location needed management we had medical facilities there we had a, a relationship with a french um, doctor who was able to assist us from uh, at site uh, so we had a plan in place but yeah it was a emergency response plan to deal with it but we had um, you know engaged the right people in terms of had you know I think the decision to have dynamic in on site with, you know, the paramedic type uh, security uh, ex, um, uh, capability was something that really um, provided a real resource to the company and actually got into a, 
you know, a military type, um, you know, um, culture that we had to uh, provide, you know, a, a structure in place that there were many risks that we needed to deal with. We were sitting right near a border. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to, uh, we had, you know, local villages who yep. were not always happy with what we were doing, but, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, you had wildlife issues yeah. and, and the like. So it was not. I think you had most... a taxi, taxi riots, I think the year before was another one in, in the capital. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. They stopped. The subsidising fuel, yeah. But, but capability and and discipline. And remember, you, you know, exploration sites often are, um, you know, you have drillers on there, which are you know unique um, groups. They you know are very focused on what they do, but you know, not necessarily um, bound by uh, good good process and and following rules. And so, so you need to have some discipline on site. And and mm. you know, Rob Longley set up a you know a, a fantastic uh, structure in in place, and we were able to support that and but having that crisis management plan at a site based on a risk assessment was able to be uh, garnished on there but you know we we were lucky we you know i i knew the people to call with that in mind is there one thing that sort of stands out to you that you would do differently uh, in the response that is in the in the crisis response obviously we can't take we can't take them back from getting onto that plane but what's one thing that you would do differently in the in the crisis response overall I, I it's hard to really work out what we do i mean i suppose um uh you know some of the things on the, the things i probably take back is that we you know if we could possibly just completely ignore the media you know like do less of the media side of things to um say that we we won't do that and we'll just um deal with um, as we you know, we didn't believe that we had any options but to do it. But I'm sure some of the media, um, the speculation and that, mm. um, it's probably the mistakes is, is how you, you weren't sure where some of this was going to go. And, mm. and ultimately, um, you know, some of it sounds as like it's, you know, it's of a genuine interest and ultimately there's an ulterior motive. And, and so probably the, some of the media side of things, I would have say, um, whilst our intention was very good, um, it, it, it built to tensions and you know you uh, from dynamic dealt you know have and we, it caused some tensions between mm. uh, dynamic and ourselves mm. because of media and how you're at yeah having said that though i'm i don't know how we deal with it today. And, and this i've spoken to some groups and saying how do you deal now with the social media aspect of it yeah that where everyone's a reporter and then you know, within your organization mm. you know you you've got um, inadvertently people who will be the reporters for uh, news. So how do you control um, news flow to be respectful? Mm. We were worried about trying to make sure the families didn't hear in any media thing, anything before we had told them. Yes. And and so that's a battle that you're going to have to deal with. And it's harder now than it was. Mm. Uh, I think a very much a you know a disciplined approach to media management and closing down of any social media and, and, mm. and is really um, uh, the way you need to go. And I, I just don't. Uh, I think we we weren't perfect in that. I think our response in terms of to the actual circumstance was very good mm. um, in in terms of we're able to get assets in the air and, and get. Um, uh, search and rescue uh, process happening um, within a time. You know, we would have loved. You know, if this happened at 
10 o'clock in the morning, you know, we would have loved to get assets and be fine the plane that, that day. But, mm. um, you know, that did we make a mistake there? No, but it's just the physical terrain we're in and having mm. to get assets in there. There was no possible way we could do it. So, you know, there's things you, you'd like to have happened better, but could we have done better? No. Mm. Um, and the only, only item is uh, how do you, what is the textbook management of media? Not sure what that is. <laughs> so, uh, if there is one, I think uh, I think I'd like to read it. What what advice would you give to anyone else now looking at um, you know looking at those type of operations over in you know over in uh, remote parts of the world or just in general your, your current business? What sort of things have you learnt out of this that you're taking into your current businesses now? Yeah, I think it is um, build relationships with people with that um, like I'm in an hour organisation which is smaller than Sundance. Uh, mm. uh, what? Mm. Uh, but we still have relationships with people about making sure I understand what's the lay of the land in terms of what it is, what our medical services are that mm -hmm. available, understanding and and um, what uh, in terms of planes. Fortunately, we don't do any charter planes where we are, and, and mm -hmm. uh, but we are able to uh, assess uh, that and, and utilise your um, diplomatic relationships in terms of DFAT. Um, and uh, Australian High Commission in the countries you use. But what what really was the important part is that you know that you can't have people in your organisation to deal with these things. You need to have groups who can provide that. So get key mm -hmm. resources who are well connected and, and can drive um, uh, processes. Um, but also have the knowledge that people know who's the person they need to contact when mm -hmm. something goes wrong and also have um, as the you know, CEO or um, a leader of an organisation, um, you be available and making sure that you know what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Be very clear in your mind who, uh, who, who, what you need to do. But it's the preparation um, in, in regard to that. So just you know, um, you know, pro understand your risk management side. You know, we've done a you know our. Um, PMC for our new project here. We've done a full risk assessment of what our risks are from a from a both from a business, but you know, uh, but we have to deal with the medical side. So you know, mm. we've got a medical group that sits there ready to be able to do response. We know where people will need to go mm. um, and how how we manage that. Um, and then you know, but understanding the risks of a business not only extends to people, um, but also, you know, your license to operate in terms of getting your environmentals right. You've just seen, you know, you know, if you talk about crisis management, you've seen, you know, a number of dam failures within mm. um, you know, um, majors um, operating. Uh, those are very, you know, uh, 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 equally as important to, you know, dealing with it because you've got people who get impacted mm. um, um, aren't your employees, but they're they're people, your local communities. They are your stakeholders, mm. and so stakeholder management and understanding and engagement is a very important part. And uh, don't um, don't treat that uh, like it's a necessity. It's actually good business practice by yeah. uh, by engaging in that and making sure you've got general acceptance. And and look, your community should often deal with art developed, and that you can treated as suspicion as all they want is money out of you. But ultimately what they want is they want to actually bring themselves into um, um, make the lives of their children um, and families better. Mm. And development of projects is a uh, is an enabler from that. But you've also got to make sure you bring them along for that 
process, make sure you engage in them and, uh, and, and, and get, you know, deal with the environment, deal with the um, uh, community uh, like it's a business driver because it is a business driver. It's a risk to your business um, and just like it and it needs to be dealt with as a contingency plan and the contingency mm. plan would be a corporate one. Uh, and the people you need to make sure is you have a core group of consultants that can um, assist you in and, and quickly and have the capability in the region you're dealing with to to have to do that because the last thing you want to be doing is left floundering in in, in something. Just mm. know who to phone. And and one of the things I've learned from a few people is relationships and knowing who to call first mm. um, and having people that you know can support various things. Uh, not formally engaged, but um able to you know provide that resource as you need to uh, do it and so that's the thing i learn um that it's uh, it's a holistic approach it's not you know don't deal with the the um the broken toe when you know it's the brick that they the stub the toe on that's that's caused the problem so yeah. Yeah. um so it's a it's a good thing and, and i think you know i've learned a lot through you know dealing with yourselves and that dynamic is that you know and 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 travelling with the, the likes of Jack, uh, uh, and and understanding that uh, there's a reason why they do that because they're you know they have a skill and it's not a skill that I'll ever have and <laughs> probably desire to have as well. But uh, that's very important in there, and 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 understanding those resources are available, utilise them. Yeah. Yeah, certainly some uh, unique individuals that you're referring to, and uh, and and again, amazingly skilled. Uh, the team that came yeah. together for that response were was certainly second to none. Yeah, and so and that's what they're there for, and and they're specialised, and and uh, you know, it's like you have engineers, you have accountants, you have mm. lawyers, um, economists, mining engineers. They they have a specialisation, and don't use the wrong person to you know don't get a HR person running your engineering group, you know, because it just doesn't doesn't necessarily work. So why not get a, um, you know, the skilled people into the right environment and, you know, just dealing with the language and how to defray, having this specialisation defraying of um, what is, a, you know, either security instance or a, um, a local community issue by talking, mm. you know. And, and that's one thing that really stood out to me from the dynamic is, these guys were, you know, obviously military, but their their first process is well, engage, make sure they have the intel, make sure they understand what the. But you know, it's usually they're talking to people. It's mm. not that's one of the skills they have and understanding of you know what what's the driver of those people's discontent. You know, mm. if there is discontent, but, um, it's a good, it's a skill. It's probably I think a lot of us can learn from that skill. Yeah, the uh, ability to listen is one of the one of the first things that we were taught in the in the military. So so it's a skill that's that certainly saved my life and saved other lives along the way. So I, uh, I'm greatly uh, thankful for that. Very grateful that they gave me that skill because I wasn't a great listener rolling in. I can tell you now, Peter. <laughs> um, look, one thing I'm asking everyone that's been part of this process, Peter, and, and, and I want to thank you in a second is. If there's anyone in the world that you could hear from about or you could speak to about a crisis that they've been involved in, any leader or any person that's been involved in a crisis, who would, it, who would, you, who would come to mind for you? No, the one I would have liked to is dead now is um, Nelson Mandela about someone who can stay the course from a, um, from a cause that they were willing to go to jail for and yeah. follow and, and how you can be so visionary about 
staying that course for a, such a long period of time. Mm. Um, yeah, but and, but you know the one, the other person that um, was uh, Don Don Lewis. Don to me was a great person. He was mm. a um, uh, he was one of the most capable pe people I've ever met. He was able to deal with the engineering, commercial, sales, um, and you know, it was only a little fellow <laughs> like a few of us, but uh, <laughs> but it was a bigger than a bigger than life individual in terms of that he he had the ability to comprehend things very quickly and see things very clearly and drive uh, a vision um, which he'd been engaged in. So I miss you know, immensely the the time you know I spent uh, three years with um, Don, which was way too short, but uh, he. Um, he was someone who, to me, was an inspiration and mm. uh, character who I love working for, and you know, and I sort of missed that. But mm. and he was a leader, you know, mm. and 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 so, uh, you know, you 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 get in, um, come in contact with various people during your life, and um, who leave an indelible memory. He's one, um, but from a you know world leader sort of things, yeah, you know, I just I can't I can't fathom people who have a lifelong commitment to a cause which is so so much that they're ultimately lay down their their life and, and impact their families to mm. to follow that course and uh, he's a perfect one and, and ultimately was vindicated through um, mm. uh, through the end of apartheid and uh, uh, but remarkable wasn't he ever uh look this has been remarkable peter so firstly you're you know uh, sitting sitting beside you and working with you throughout that response uh, was was also a tribute to your you know your leadership and your ability to work under some extreme circumstances and you and you admit yourself that um, that those sort of you've never been trained you've never been through that type of environment um, and to find yourself in that position and do what you did and, and lead the way in which you did was, was a real tribute to you and also to the people uh, whose legacy we're speaking about today so so thank you again for your time and and, uh, and I look forward to seeing you in person again soon. Great, thanks. That concludes episode two, part two of the Sundance Resources Air Crash. Next week, we'll be interviewing Dan Cooney. Dan Cooney is a former Navy aviator who's written a book on leadership and decision-making. He's now working in the UK as an advisor to multiple businesses talking about risk, leadership, and decision-making in crisis. We'll talk about the processes that the aviation industry applies to decision-making and crisis management. In particular, we'll focus on how they explore lessons learned and opportunities for improvement to prevent any incidents from occurring again.